Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, September 12th. Usually on this podcast, we say storylines, results, and controversies. It's very results-centric. But given that the U.S. Open has just passed, we've had, we have a little bit of time to breathe. There are still events going on here or there, but we can sort of sit back, look at some of those bigger storylines, some of those fun controversies from the past couple of hardcourt months. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing today, and there is no... Uh, co-host I would rather be doing this with and our guest today, our newest member of the Crack Rackets podcast team, Westoff, right off the bat. Give me some celebratory sound effects. You will recognize her voice as she was recently kind enough to come on our Cracked Interviews podcast. Vicki Duvall, welcome back to the mini break. Woo! Thank you for having me. It's so cool to be back as a team member now. <laughs> Can't get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners who are wondering what that means, Vicki, uh, she says this now, but I promise you, two pods are going to feel differently. Uh, she is, you know, you're kind enough to give us your time. Hopefully, we'll be able to do this once a week. Talk about a variety of different, you know, stories. It's it seems like it's the perfect thing to do for this post U.S. Open stretch. Yeah, I mean, honestly, so much happened. Obviously, at the U.S. Open, and uh, from a player's side, I have a bit of insight too. And so, um, I think it's just going to be fun to discuss some of the things, some of the controversies, some of the highlights, lowlights. I think it'll be people want to know. <laughs> yeah, and look, we uh, we have some ideas in the works for you, fairly odd parents fans out there. The Icky Vicky segment, that of course referring to the babysitter of the one and only Timmy Turner. Timmy, Timmy, Timmy Turner. Uh, that could be something we work into this. There's. There's been a lot of nerddom thrown around. I'm not going to tell you, read the text, but there's a little thank you, thank you very much. Uh, that sort of stuff that was for Vicky, sorry. Uh, and it's, so it's, we're going to have fun with this. We'll talk about a variety of subjects, as Vicky mentioned, to have her here, a player's perspective on the issues or the stories we've been talking about a lot over these past couple of weeks is going to be very fun. And that's the theme for today. We are going to, we're going to cover a couple of different things. I want to start with some final post US Open thoughts to put a bow on. On that, And then we're also going to talk about what it's like from a player's perspective to prepare for the post-U.S. Open push. A lot of fans, at least fair-weather fans, thinks tennis stops after the majors, and it really doesn't. Players still have September, October, November, even a little bit of creeping weeks in December, and then before you know it, it's December 31st and we're starting a new season. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about how play, you know, how you, Vicky, uh, approach that sort of the year, some funny stories from you. I have talked enough, though. Sound good? Yes. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, then, the place I want to start today, as I mentioned, the U.S. Open, putting a bow on that. One of the biggest uh, things, you know, throughout the two weeks, one of the most fun storylines to watch was 
Daniil Medvedev and his relationship with the crowd and how it vacillated from start to finish. At the beginning, he's troll. You know, he had a poor exchange with a ball kid, which obviously you never commend that. He snatches the towel, whatever it was, and then he's flicking off the New York crowd on camera, and it starts. It's just, it's he's a villain. He's playing into that villain role, and I guess you know it was so funny to see him embrace that to be like it was because of you guys I won this match. Can you ever imagine playing a match like that? Is that a thing? No, honestly, it kind of shocks me because I think the catalyst to the behavior was when he put his middle finger up, right? Was that the first? I think that was the first thing that started. It was a New York hello. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, right off the bat, and I thought it was hilarious when Nick Curios put that on his Twitter homepage. I mean, I don't know. I hilarious might not be the choice of words here, but <laughs> you know. But um, yeah. I mean, I think I was talking to some of my friends about it, and I was like, "Do you really think he's enjoying it? Because there's no. I can't imagine that feels good to be playing and have you know people booing you and cheering against you just because of the behavior and stuff. Like, it, it was funny to me to see how he was using that at the end of the matches but deep down like was he really feeling that I don't know that was kind of a million dollar question for me so flip side to flip this on to you I'm going to take our listeners back to 2012 we're you know 16 years old still when the U.S. Open and yes we because we're both 95ers that's going to be a theme uh you know we're 16 years old and you know now you I'm going to say specifically get to play a first round match at the U.S. Open and I mean, I guess, at the, you know, you're so much younger at the time, but isn't the stage itself, isn't that going to be enough of an adrenaline rush? Like, why why would Medvedev want to start inciting the crowd? What is it about, you know, what was he, what do you think he could have possibly been thinking? I honestly don't know. I mean, just to kind of touch on when I was 16, I was in full panic mode before I even went out <laughs> to that match because it was the opening night on Ash. So they had the whole, you know, ceremony, the national anthem and all that jazz. And I was in the locker room and I was just pacing back and forth. Like I didn't know what to do with myself. And I mean, I, until this day, the story gives me chills, but Kim Kleisters, who obviously I was playing that night, she uh, came up to me. She's like, she's like, how are you? And I was like, can you tell I'm freaking out? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> um, and she sat and talked to me for like, you know, 10 minutes before we played. And she was like, I remember when I was your age and I played against Steffi Graf. I think that's what she said. And, and Steffi, like she looked up to her growing up. I hope it was Steffi Graf. I'll sound really stupid. But um, she was like, yeah, you know, playing your idols is always tough. And she talked to me the whole time. And when I went out, you know, obviously I felt a little bit better that she talked to me before the match. But when I went out, just like, you know, the crowd was cheering so much for me because here's, like, this 16-year-old kid on, like, the biggest stage of her life right now, you know? And so I couldn't imagine having that amount of atmosphere going the opposite way for you because it was, like, already such an amazing experience, obviously, to have, like, so many people, but there's so much noise in the stadium. And I don't I don't know, like, how someone could cope with, like, that much noise in the stadium being negative. like. I feel like that would, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just a testament to how Medvedev mind works, you know, like, I don't know, because even the following matches, I feel like even when the crowd, when he played Nadal and the crowd was really loud, you know, obviously Nadal stopped a few times because Nadal was saying he couldn't hear anything and Medvedev would just serve 
like he just served and played as if like you know it didn't affect him at all so maybe he's just one of those people that like it really didn't affect him i don't know question mark (laughs) (laughs) no it it was so interesting to see especially because the relationship developed right what started as booze eventually by you know midway through that second week they kind of fell in love with him they started to like medvedev more and more the way he would you know fight out of tough situations it felt like after that Stan Wawrinka match the crowd really turned in his favor and you know the way they embraced him post Grigor because he kept turning I think he just really wanted to engage the New York fans positive or negatively I think his gamble was it's just better it's more fun for him in that night in that environment to have an engaged crowd and watching at watching it from home i if you're able to tune out the booze the way he does just to play in that environment would be a dream come true yeah no for sure i agree and even a little bit and then the doll match too you know once he looked down and out in that third set when the doll went up a break at three two i mean i i thought the match was over then and then you know i flipped the score back on and he won seven five and i was like whoa you know and so I think you're right. Like, good or bad, he was really just fighting off of it. And then, obviously, in that match, the crowd was really behind him. I mean, they wanted to see, you know, a really long final, as always. And, and you know, it they delivered. Nadal and Medvedev delivered. Two sets to down, or two sets to love down, it did feel like the crowd was just like, we want more of this. This has been so physical. This match has been so impressive. And that's what they got. Medvedev was able to come back. And I guess... Again, you talk about playing, you know, 16, 17 years old. Uh, when you played the U.S. Open back-to-back, you have gotten to play, you know, slam, other slams since then. But can you speak to just that atmosphere, what it's like when you have an engaged Arthur Ashe crowd rocking? Oh, I mean, I've I've experienced nothing like it, honestly. Um, the whole pretty much, like, first few games of that match when I was 16 are a blur because... I think I was just so, like, shocked and overwhelmed, and um, I couldn't even really process what was going on. I mean, I think the first game, I, like, ricocheted a forehand that hit my side before going into the net, and I was like, oh, boy, (laughs) this is what we're doing today. Um, No, but, and then obviously the following year, I had a great match against Sam Stoser on Louis. Obviously, Louis is a bit of a smaller stadium, but still, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable how much noise was coming from that stadium. It was such a close match. I mean, we were battling all the way into the third set. I had a few match points. I couldn't close. I mean, the whole time, the crowd was so engaged. And, and honestly, it really does help the players. Like, I think one of the reasons so many Americans, they love playing at the Open. It's a lot of favorite tournaments for a lot of the Americans is because you get a crowd engagement like nowhere else, you know, and there's there's really nothing like it. I think it also sometimes extends beyond the Americans. We saw all of the Canadians coming out for Bianca Andreescu. Two of my favorite performers to watch in New York are Juan Martin Del Potro and Diego Schwartzman because for some reason there's always a huge Argentinian fan base out there for them in the stadium. Yeah, the Del Po songs are ringing, but... We talk about the booing that Medvedev faced. The New York crowd will get after you. I think that's part of 
I don't want to say the fun. Maybe it's part of the fun of watching. May I imagine yeah. if you're playing in the environment, you don't feel the same way. But what do you think when the crew, uh, the crowd starts booing? You know, Djokovic when he's injured at the end of those match, uh, at the end of his match against Stan, and we saw you know various sprinkles of booing throughout the rest of the two weeks as well. As a player, does that offend you? Again, it seemed like Medvedev was like, "All right, I'll take." Like, I just want you guys engaged. Do you notice those sort of things? Or are you so locked in? I can't imagine anyone's ever booed you, Vicky. But like in theory, if they were to boo you, you know what? What would the thinking be there? I I probably wouldn't sleep for a lot of days if the crowd <laughs> booed me for anything. <laughs> I'm one of those people who like any little negative thing about me just really keeps me up at night. <laughs> so um, I I honestly just couldn't even imagine it and. You know, I think that's part of the energy of the New York crowd. And I completely agree that it extends beyond the Americans. You know, we always see a huge following for Simona Halep, um, who's another one that immediately comes to mind. I feel like wherever she plays, Mm -hmm. she has like a big following behind her. And you can hear them sometimes over everyone else cheering. So, I mean, I think, you know, for Djokovic being booed out of his match, I, I, I I thought that was a little bit hard to watch. I thought that was a little bit harsh because, you know, Novak is such a great champion and he, he, I don't think he would have stopped unless he really genuinely, obviously could not keep going or it wasn't in his best interest to keep going. And so, you know, as, as a a consumer of entertainment who I understand if you like paid for, you know, your session and all this stuff and, you didn't get everything you came for. I get it. Like, obviously, you know, from that side, I get it. But I just feel like someone like that who's had some of the most historic matches in tennis history, you know, how many, like, long finals has he had and and just so much that he's brought to tennis. I thought that was a pretty hard moment to see him get booed off his match like that. And we saw the little sarcastic thumbs up from him as he <laughs> exited the court. So I, I don't, obviously he wasn't super happy with that reception. So I feel like the Djokovic persona has really shifted over the years. Early on, he used to do the imitations. He used to, you know, do the Sharapova, the Roddick, all of these different things. Then he, you know, then he started winning a lot. And it, it almost felt like, it feels like people, you don't want to, this is such a generalization, but whatever. There is some people resent him for breaking up the Federer and Nadal monotony. He is sort of the villain of those three guys. He, it seems like, like I can never think of a crowd booing Nadal or Federer. It just doesn't happen. For some reason, Djokovic is the guy that they turn the vitriol to. It is weird. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, obviously, it's it's a race for them to, you know, be in the history books for the most Grand Slams. And, uh, I mean, I think the rivalries, I think the rivalries with the big four, um, you know, Thank when you. Murray... But was that for me? Was that just for me? Do you know I'm a Murray fan? Oh, really? Oh, that's my guy. Oh, my gosh. We love Murray. <laughs> We're learning new things every day. Oh, we can do – that's two weeks from now. We'll do a Murray Love Fest. Oh, my gosh. Okay, <laughs> perfect. I cried when he did the, I'm getting closer. I was crying. I was I like, know. <laughs> I'm so happy to see him playing doubles again, too. I'm like, it's like a small victory. And I think he played he played one singles tournament, right? Or one or two? Yeah. In singles, yeah. He played Winston-Salem, and he played Cincy. And he played a challenger, and he didn't do well in the challenger. But that's a story for another time. 
yes, we'll we'll touch on Murray another time. But um, yeah, I completely agree. I I think it's really interesting the reception Novak gets compared to. I don't think it would have happened to a Federer at all. Like I I really don't. Yeah, I mean Federer called the medical timeout. No one cared. I guess it's not the same as ending the match. Um, especially because it did go five, and Grigor did beat him, and Federer's play did drop off, and you know maybe Novak could have stayed out there for another couple of games. But at that point, what's the point? Like we all saw where that match was heading. So Dabu, I agree with you, a little bit classless to say the least. But at the same time, big picture, would you rather have a New York crowd everywhere you went or a dead crowd? Oh my gosh, New York crowd! Yeah, without question, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, personally. No, 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 personally, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a player who thrives on a lot of energy as well, too. So, um, <laughs> lucky for me, I haven't had bad energy <laughs> anytime I've played. You thrive on energy? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I thrive on people being quiet. Sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> no, you and Westoff in our little intro, you guys were hitting it off. He's silent, and you're just, you know, giving him the business. <laughs> I was like, here we go again, but he doesn't stop talking. <laughs> no, I'm sure he's had, he's like, oh my God, there's another one of them. He's like, oh, you're putting them on the same podcast. And- oh, we're so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's half the fun. That's what I'm really seriously looking forward to doing this. Um- Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Okay, U.S. Open-wise, other topics I know you wanted to get to, uh, but I'm going to throw in now one I wanted to ask you about. To see Bianca Andreescu win, the 19-year-old who has had, I think she's like 49-50-4 at this point on the season. You know, the results speak for themselves, but as a 23-year-old player also hoping to ascend the ranks, when you see her have this level of success, what sort of message does that send to you? And what was it like to see her break through the way she did this entire year? Oh, I mean, obviously it was amazing. I mean, I'm a diehard Serena fan, and and I would have been so happy to see Serena get to 24. But, you know, it was clear that Bianca really deserved that match as well, the way she played and the way she's been playing the whole year. Um, you know, coming back from her injury and stuff, she I heard a commentator say, I don't remember who it was, Bianca has forgotten what losing is because <laughs> I think she's lost, like, one match since I don't even know when she came back. But, um, yeah, you know, for from a player's perspective, you know, looking at someone like her who's clearly put in so much work and who is fearless on the court, it kind of really motivates the other ones on their way up to be like, yeah, you know, we can get there too if, you know, we have we put all our ducks in a row. Um, so I think it's it's just really nice to see and honestly it's it's always nice to have a fresh face hold the trophy as well, you know, and, and I think the beginning of the year, what did they say? There were like nine seventeen different champions in the first seventeen tournaments of the year or something like that. So um another set like that just really gives us the motivation to be like it could be us too you know and so 
putting in the work day in and day out and going out there fearless. I think that's one of the biggest things these days. There's Everyone knows how to play. It's all in the mindset, you know, and so you have to be fearless. You have to go for it because if you don't, they're going to take it from you. So. Yeah, I, you cannot. The one thing you'll say about Bianca Andrescu, she goes for it. And one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite stats from the year: fourteen different women made the sixteen, uh, made six or fourteen of the sixteen semifinal spots at the majors this year. The only people to do it multiple times: Svitolina and Serena. And yeah, it speaks to the parity. It speaks to how many excellent players there are right now on the WTA tour. You mentioned being a lifelong Serena fan. She's made you know finals at the past two years at Wimbledon, at the U.S. Open, and unfortunately her quest for 24 still coming up short. What did you think of her performance just in general? How are you feeling about Team Serena? Uh, I just, I don't know. Honestly, I the way she started the tournament was so impressive. We we have to talk about the cat suit. <laughs> <laughs> of we, what what for, I'm going to ask you what your thoughts were on the cat suit. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I what do I care? I told you earlier in the week I'm ready for the guys to play shirtless. Like at this point, if we're gonna objectify the athletes, let's objectify the athletes. Let's double down. Um, no, it's just like it, it's awesome. Everything Serena does, just she when you're in her presence and just to, in general, you're like this is a superstar. Everything she does is at a superstar level. She is the goat, and so. I agree. The way she steamrolled through the tournaments, through the quarterfinals and semifinals, she could do whatever she wants. Yes, the catsuit was so Serena. It brought it brought back. Um, I forget what year she wore that famous Puma catsuit at the Open. <laughs> um, it definitely brought back those vibes. I mean, I think it's just gonna have to be her getting over the hump in finals. You know, she's been so close so many times. And um, I really think she'll she'll get to 24 in the next couple she plays, you know. But, I mean, I think for everyone watching, some of the matches she had going through the tournament, I mean, it's just clear that when Serena's on, you can't really contest with her. (laughs) You know, you just really can't. So... I was, someone said um, when she was playing her matches in the cat suit, after every match she played in the cat suit, there was like a game tally. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> the cat suit is up 12 games to one, or like, because I think obviously it was a pretty quick match with Maria. And then her second, her second match in the cat suit, I think she lost two games, so the cat suit was up like 24 games to four or something. <laughs> it was like a crazy stat like that. I know, I kind of wish she would have worn it in the finals. I, I was shocked to not see it. I was like, this, are we sure we want to do this, Serena? Like, you've been rocking and rolling. I know, she's been just waxing people in the cat suit, so I was pretty shocked. I was pretty yeah. shocked. Are, are you a person with superstitions? Mm, not really, no. See, I'm someone who, if I win in, like, a certain pair of socks, I'm like, oh, so I'm wearing long black socks all week. So that's, like, the thing. And so for her, I'd be like, did you see my Svitolina performance? Like, <laughs> go wash this shit immediately. Like, we're not changing anything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it ultimately, again, we, this is why we started out with it. It was a credit to Bianca Andreescu, who played so well. To go up an early break 2-0 on Serena in your first Grand Slam final, that's, like, the dream script. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it it was really fun to see. But with that said, any other U.S. Open thoughts? Um, 
Um, I think we kind of have to get into our favorite matches. I'm going to go first, but I, I do want to hear what your favorite match of the Open was. I like um, it. We, we need highlights and lowlights of the Open. So <laughs> I'm going to go first to set the tone here. But my highlight um, match, oh, this is all on the men's side. Oh, I need to think of a women's match. Okay, so my highlight match was uh, Gael Monfils and Berentini. Wow. I mean, I know... Wow, right? I know yeah. Berentini was kind of working his way up and stuff. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's me, but I feel like he was kind of flying on a low radar. Is it me, or was he, like, kind of in the spotlight? Well, I'll use this opportunity to plug a Great Shot podcast we did a couple of weeks ago. Um, no, he, you know, he's won a couple of titles this year. He's, I think, in the race to the year-end finals, he's, like, number 10 or 11 right now. So he really has been one of the guys, but he got injured after Wimbledon, where I think he made the fourth round and got blown out by Fed. So, yeah, he hadn't ha- he lost, I think, first round since he, he didn't have much match experience coming into uh, – match experience. I mean, just recent match experience coming into the Open. But I mean, talk. This guy is a middle linebacker, like masquerading as a tennis player. <laughs> also a GQ model, I feel like from some of his pictures <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> but no, the yeah. stubble's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. He he knows how to work the camera. <laughs> um, but I mean, that was seriously a crazy final. That was that was unbelievable to watch. So and and. For Gael, I mean, anytime Gael's on TV, you know, everyone's tuned in. We love, we love a good Gael match. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that was probably one of the highlights. I mean, I feel like the low light was Federer losing, you know, anytime oh Federer loses. Oh my God, you're one of those people? I'm one of those, oh. like, it's a baby funeral at the house every time Federer loses. We light some candles and we rethink our whole existence. <laughs> oh, mini crisis mode. See, the, the counterpoint though is who we lost to, right? At least it was baby fed. At least it was Grigor. I know. Ugh, how much does he hate people calling him baby fed? Though I feel like he's so over it. Yeah, I don't think anyone does anymore. Like, oh, you're baby fed. At first of all, I'd be like, what? Like, yeah. I, I thank you for recognizing me. You watch tennis, like, unless you want. If you don't know tennis, um, all right, let's alternate. I'm gonna throw in one of my highlights. I yes. really, really enjoyed. Andrescu Bencic as a semifinal. I think that could be sneaky, one of the great rivalries over the next five to ten years. Oh, I agree. I love watching Bencic play. She's so smart on the court, too. So cerebral. She can do a little of everything. A little bit of everything. Takes the ball so early. I mean, she obviously gives a very Hingis vibe in the way that she plays. (laughs) She just understands, I mean, just high tennis IQ, really understands the court, understands how to build a point. I agree. That was one of the highlights for sure on the women's side. Um, Two youngins just battling. I know, youngins. Are we going to call them youngins? They are younger than us. I mean, they are. It's so funny. Like, I feel so much older than these girls, but it's really, what, like, two years? <laughs> yeah, it's not. No, I mean, Andreski's not even 2-0 yet. I mean, like, call me when you get to, you know, the 20 club. Um, I know. But, come when you're out of your teens. Yeah, if you want to go for a drink in a year and a half, come call me then. But, like, before then, uh, no, I mean, yeah, it was... 
it, it's just a really fun again the contrast of styles they both on a hard court are going to be tough out over the next you know five to ten years if they stay healthy so really fun to watch I also on the men's side flip side not not really a big result but I think it was first round Paolo Lorenzi played Kalamazoo champion Zach Svaja the 16 year old and I mean my my serve is bigger than Svaja's at this point and he does everything no he does everything else better but it's like this guy's got a growth spurt left in him still. And to see him go to a fifth set and compete the way he did against Lorenzi, and to see the way the crowd just embraced him, dare I say, it reminded me of watching young Vicky against Kim Kleisters in 2012. Oh, we love those vibes. <laughs> is he tiny? Is he tiny? or? Uh, I, I don't want to be wrong, but off of my impressions, he, I mean, he's not big yet. He is 16. Okay, still developing. Okay, he's younger than my little brother, which is cr- that's a me thing, but like <laughs> to me, that's nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. I missed that. I'm gonna have to sneak some of those highlights and yeah, show them. He's a little cutie. He's. Uh, I think you'll like it. Okay. Yeah. And it was just the, yeah the way physically he was able to do. It. But yeah, the, the, I would say that was a fun match. I'm trying to think straight up tennis wise. What was when I was just like. Mm. Um, oh, watching Hyun Chung do well. Oh, Chung Escobedo. There it is. Oh, First round. Five sets. We I love Chung. Love wow. him. Wow. Chung gang forever. <laughs> <laughs> I call it the Chung train and spell it with a C-H, but that's really, you know, corny. Oh, my God. It's even better. <laughs> <laughs> I literally feel so bad sometimes because I, anytime Hyung posts a picture, not, not every time, I mean, I'm going to look like crazy person here but like my friend and I we comment on his picture and we'll tag each other and we'll put like hashtag chung gang or something and I'm like <laughs> if he's reading these I hope because he knows who I am obviously and I'm just like this is like imagine fangirling like your sort of friend like that's so odd <laughs> is that not what this podcast is me fangirling my sort of friend um, I feel like I just turned it into a podcast for <laughs> uh, So I feel, I mean, behind the scenes, listeners, we were about to sing some Icky Vicky from Fairly Odd Parents earlier on in the show. And I was like, oh, no, what if she hears my voice? Like, Don't she's gonna leave be like, me hanging. No, you better not leave me hanging. We, we had a silent promise, even though we didn't promise. But I promised in my heart that I would sing it and you can't leave me hanging. We, the people want to hear the vocals. We have pipes, and the people have to know. Uh. <laughs> Icky Vicky. Ooh, ooh. Oh, God. <laughs> That's not the first line, though. Wait, I had it Googled. What was the first line again? Oh, it's, you know what's sad is I know it off the top of my head, but I'll give it a little rendition. Hey, Vicky, you're so, so icky. Yeah, and then it just kind of goes on. But I, I didn't want to get too into it. Yeah, we don't want to expose ourselves. Yeah, to it's episode guys. one. Exactly. You're like, oh, you were really gonna sing it. No, here I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna pull it up right here. Hey, Vicky, you're so so icky. Just about it being around you makes me oh so sticky. <laughs> Does that mean it's time for the icky Vicky segment? I don't even think we knew what we were gonna do for it today, but should we roll it in? Make Westoff find a sound effect. I'm gonna let's roll it in. I have an icky story. <laughs> All right, icky Vicky Westoff sound effect, please. Hey, 
All right, hit me with today's story. I like this, by the way. We're definitely doing this all the time. <laughs> um. Okay, today's icky story. Or should I say icky Vicky story? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say Vicky because we can say icky about another topic. So, okay. Today's icky story has to do with me unpacking my bags in the car. So okay. I got back from... Wait, real quick. I, I need more. Uh, give me the, the car model. Oh, you were you said you got back to New Haven. Perfect. No, no, no. Okay, here we go. We're going to start over. We need to cut all of that. <laughs> right. West off, give me a rewind sound effect, please. All right, take two. Take two. All right. So today's icky story has to do with the situation I found in my car coming back from New Haven. So I, for those of you who, I mean, you could probably guess what car I drive. I drive a white 2018 bug. Like what other car would I drive? (laughs) She has a bug. And so um, I didn't realize that I left a banana peel and some fruit in the car before I went to the airport. Oh, no. Oh, no. And so I get back from New Haven. I was playing a tournament there. I was gone for, like, five days. I get back, or a little bit more. We got to the semis of those. I get back, and there was just an ant fest everywhere in the car. And I was like, oh, my word. I'm Googling. I'm freaking out, right? Googling how to, like, discard ants in the car. I'm like... I don't want this to be a massacre in my car, but they can't stay here. Like, you're not welcome in the car. (laughs) And so people are like, put vinegar in a spray bottle and spray. I'm like, well, then do I want ants or vinegar car? Like, I don't know. Those both sound like worst case scenarios for me. (laughs) Like, how many days till the vinegar stops, like, reeking in the car? (laughs) And so I'm just full freaking, freaking out. And I'm like, do I go to, like, do I go to the store and get, like, ant traps and set them up, like, you know, in front of the windshield? I'm like, but then who's who wants to drive around with ant traps? So I'm, <laughs> I'm freaking out. And so I took it to the car wash, and they did a vacuum and all this stuff. And we found the banana peel and the fruits, and it smelled so bad. It was so <laughs> disgusting. The banana, I'm like, it, it wasn't even black anymore. Like, I don't even know what color to describe when a banana goes but I wouldn't recommend keeping a banana in a 110 degree car for a week like seriously so yeah that's that's our icky story we got it sorted out it took two whole days of just perseverance but it's safe to say my car is currently antless so (laughs) it worked out yeah Westoff give me another icky vicky sound effect please Today's Icky Vicky story, shockingly unsponsored, feels like that should be a sponsored segment. Um, so I know, that's like a, yeah, exactly. Sponsored by Carmax. Get your cars washed before you turn it into us. Carmax. <laughs> Bananas in the car. Um, no, uh, yeah, that was uh, the way uh, Carmax should be. Like, <laughs> brought to you by Febreze. Do you have vinegar car? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people get me to do my cackle laugh. I was like, cackle laugh. That's another segment. Oh, gosh. That's amazing. That's what I was looking for. Well, with that being said, here will be the all-time pivot. 
another thing that's, you know, very, very difficult to wash away, the fatigue that comes with being this deep in the season, and that is the next and last topic we want, I want to hit today. Uh, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you, now that we are done with the U.S. Open, there's still so much tennis left to be played in 2019, and I wanted to ask in particular you know, how you, uh, how players get geared up for this end half. You have already played an event in New Haven where you, you know, you've semifinals and doubles. I, we talked about the three-set loss a little bit off, uh, you know, that one being that. But just in general, how do you get amped up for this home stretch? Um, yeah, obviously this time of the year is the hardest physically because the body's been through a lot the whole season, you know? I mean, not personally because I haven't played a ton of tournaments, but um, for the vast majority of players, it's kind of shifting in another gear to really get that last push. Um, and obviously for those who qualify for the year-end championships, you know, it's like a another sort of grand slam, if you will, because it's such a big event, you know, having the top eight players in the world competing it's it's a really tough um tournament to end the year so you know most of the tournaments now are in asia um so vast majority of the players have shifted to china and japan to play some of the tournaments there um i was originally gonna go to japan um i was gonna go for three weeks but i just kind of figured um still have a few things to work out before I feel super comfortable going obviously on that far of a trip um, to compete and it's it's tough you know because we we still have expectations and goals that we want to achieve towards the end of the year gearing up for Aussie Open you know some of those ranking goals and performance goals to get ready for the year so the pressure is still very much there and um it's added, you know, because the body's a bit worn down, but um, it's a fun time of the year. I have some tournaments in the States, um, and the cool thing for us who are playing sort of the lower level, if you will, tournaments is in October we have three tournaments where the highest um, point earner will get a wild card into Aussie Open. So we saw Christy Ange, that's what she was able to do to get a wild card into the U.S. Open. And so we'll have those tournaments in October to kind of give ourselves a chance to get into Aussie Open. So obviously, again, big mental push towards the end of the year to really set up a solid 2020. And you, I'm glad you mentioned that Australian Open Wild Card Challenge. Last year, the events were in Georgia, Tyler, Texas, Las Vegas, and Houston. I think that's where a bunch of them are this year as well, and you talk about that in particular. But you mentioned the, the that result, that streak of results, focusing on those tournaments in particular. But you mentioned balancing being healthy and understanding that there's still a lot of time to accumulate a bunch of points for you in particular, given the long layoffs you had, um, I guess, it, do you even think about, do you think about your, you know, your body still at this point, do you still think about maintaining your health heading into 2020? Because, you know, that's changeover from 2019 to 2020 happens pretty quickly. Or do you still, because of where you're at with your ranking, have to think, man, I have to rack up points. Like, I still have a bunch of tournaments to play this year. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, personally, it's kind of a fine line of figuring out how my body's gonna react to a certain amount of load on the road. And so load on the road. Hey, great shot. That was good. 
Wow. Wow. We didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but I couldn't let that slide. Go on. Oh, gosh. Thank, thank you for not letting that slide because that was impressive. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think personally it's about, you know, if, is it two or three tournaments in a row that I can do and really be engaged enough to perform to the best of my ability, you know? So I'm still kind of in that stage of figuring out um, – what's the optimal amount of weeks that I can be on the road that works for me? Um, because I haven't really had enough of the experience back on tour right now. It's, it's only been um, a few weeks where I'm back competing again. So I'm still trying to get that balance. And, and I think for most players, you know, some players have different goals. Some players, you know, they play a lot of weeks because they just really, want to maximize the amount of points they can earn and um, climb their way up the rankings. And that's totally fine. Obviously, if your body can sustain it, that's amazing. And then some players, you know, it's more about figuring out how much your body can handle, which is part of where I'm at, you know. So um, I think I'm not too focused on the ranking right now, just because, again, like I said, I'm really trying to figure out what works for me so I think once I figure out that balance and I figure out you know I've, I've been able to figure out my training regimen to a T now so we know exactly how many hours I can spend on the court on the gym so that I really feel my best and then once we figure out the tournament side of it then then obviously you know we can start structuring the schedule and really honing in on um, optimal times to get after the ranking points. You talk about being on the road. There, there are a ton of American events uh, at in this portion of the year, at least at the 80, 125K level. Not a ton, but more so than usual. Some of them also indoor hardcore events. You don't see that often versus, yeah, believe me, we love that. I'm a Midwest boy from Michigan. I can only hit it overheads indoors. Um, oh, yeah. That's a story. But if we're indoors, it's over. Uh, that's so not true. You would beat me. When we eventually meet up and play the mini break set, uh, we'll probably do me and you versus Rothman and Fliegner, and that'll be fun. That's going to be some fun. Um, oh, my I God. They're going to have no chance. <laughs> I'll keep it low and slow, but it'll be slow. Um, but that's yeah, that's a story for another time. But balancing, you know, being on the road, and you, you mentioned some time you thought about going to Japan versus all of the events being here what goes into making that decision of, you know, I'm just going to pick a random guy. I think I saw Colin Altamirano is currently in China right now playing challengers. How do you make the choice of doing that versus, or versus the choice of just staying in America, maybe seeing some faces you've seen a lot of, but just playing the events that are close to home? Yeah, I mean, I think um, speaking on personal experience, I think some of the factors for me that go into deciding where I want to go obviously the first thing is ranking um seeing if you're gonna have a spot in the main draw or in the qualifying um I think another important factor is um who's gonna be with you that's my biggest thing so I didn't really figure out who could travel with me to those three tournaments um in Asia and I kind of figured that would be um, a tough undertaking to go to such a faraway place that I've never been to before, which I'm sure is fine and everything would be fine. But I think, you know, obviously it'd be a scary thing for me to do anytime you go somewhere new, especially by yourself. You know, it's a little bit scary. So um, that was 
part of my reasoning as well. Um, the third thing that I usually think about is preparedness. And so I wanted to stay a little bit closer to home. Um, I, I still feel like I have a lot of things to work on um, to get my game to where I want it to be. And obviously some of that has to do with getting match tough um, and playing a lot of tournaments. But I just kind of felt like I still had some things to work on and, and wanted to stay closer to home and not feel so much pressure being so far away at the moment, you know, um, at the stage I'm at in my comeback. And I think, you know, I've heard from other players as well, one of the factors they take into the consideration is seeing different faces. You know, we've, we play so many of these tournaments in the States and you encounter the same people every time I had, I had two tournaments in California last year where I played the first, the same person twice in the, in the one week. And then the next week we played again, Lauren Davis <laughs> lost both times. <laughs> I was like, we learned nothing from the last match. <laughs> Love Lauren to death, but yikes. Um, and so I think that's one of the things as well. You know, some people just go to see fresh faces. And honestly, it's it's a good thing to do. You just play different game styles. Um, there's so many psychological factors in playing, obviously, your friends as well, and just people you see all the time. So... I think um, those are the kind of the four things that I personally take into consideration, and I think probably most players would think that way as well. That's, again, why we want to have you on the podcast. That's the sort of explanation listeners are looking for. You can imagine how difficult it must be uh, to balance all of those things. I'm just thinking about it now. It's hard for me to pick what I want for dinner. And, like, you have to pick, you know, six months in advance if I want to play the Australian Open Wildcard Challenger. Do I want to go to China, experience some things? I'll do some plugging here. On a recent Cracked Interviews, we got to talk to Sebastian Corda, who was very Sebastian cordial with his answers. Um, good joke there. Thank you for speaking over it. I'm glad that joke was for Dalton, who made it after I did the podcast. I'm like, dude, how did you not give me that beforehand? But really? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's free because, you know, that's my sort of – stupid humor um but yes. with that you know he talked about getting the chance for him he, he's a little younger I think he's born in 2000 but getting the chance to go on the road for the first time to experience just what that thrill is like you know being somewhere else culturally being out of your comfort zone being forced to adjust and it almost forces you know force you to mature grow up and be a professional I'm curious for you in your career thus far any any uh, goofy experiences on the road that where you're like oh my god I can't you know that really were wake-up calls? Um, I have a lot of goofy travel stories. I think <laughs> I think we need to do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> a life on the there is, Yes, there's so many story times for that. We have some goofy plane experiences. We have some goofy hotel experiences. <laughs> we have, I mean, just to give a little kind of preview. I was gonna say, I, give us a little tease. I'm going to give you a little tease. So when I was younger, I think I was uh, in my teens, can't remember how old I exactly was, but I was flying to the Czech Republic for a tournament and um, I look at my ticket and it's seat like, I mean, the plane was massive, right? So it was seat like 40 something like E or it was like, yeah, it was like an E or something like that. Or I don't even remember what it was, but I was like, okay, I'm in the middle for sure. That's fine. So I'm walking on the plane and there's three, there's two aisles and there's three 
seats and then there's a middle aisle and five seats in the middle and then there's another aisle and then three seats on the left side so it's three five three and I was like if I'm in the middle of the five seater I'm going to (laughs) jump off this plane (laughs) and what do you know I'm in the middle of the five and it's a seven hour flight and I'm just sitting in the middle of these two couples next to me (laughs) <laughs> and I did not have much room at all. And anytime I wanted to get up, I was so concerned. Like it, every everyone was sleeping too. I'm like, wake up! I gotta go to the bathroom. So that's just one of my zillion travel stories that were less than enjoyable. But <laughs> we managed to touch on Nebby real quick. Did you know that he? I don't know if he mentioned this in his podcast. He has a sushi named after his family. What? Yeah, so there's a sushi place in Bradenton. Um, obviously he trains at IMG as well. Mm-hmm. And we uh we go to the sushi place in Bradenton. It's called Sam O'Jung, I think. And I walk in there one day. Usually I just order and pick it up, so I don't really pay attention to the menu. I know exactly what I want, but I was just like, and, you know, it was one of those days where you just kind of like glance at the menu because why not? You know, like we have some spicy menu. shrimp sounds good today. Yeah. yeah! Oh my god, the comparison's amazing. <laughs> and so I'm looking at the menu and I see corduroy. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I think it's a spicy tuna roll with like, oh my god. He is a spicy tuna, let me tell you. He's a spicy tuna kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> the roll was amazing. I've never tried it, but you know what? I think I'm going to have to go back and give it a whirl. Yeah, that, how cool is that to have his food named after you? <laughs> the kid wins one junior slam and now he's got a sushi roll. That is, I wish. No. <laughs> I should have texted you beforehand. That's that's better than Sebastian Cordial. That's way better. Um, that's hilarious. Talk to him about it, cause it's. I mean, you should have asked him all the ingredients and stuff. That would have been a talking point. <laughs> you know, it's honestly more of an organic seaweed that they use for the cordial roll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then the, the tuna comes from which country again? <laughs> exactly, it's an ahi tuna, not to be confused with the others. I don't know the other tunas. That's all I got. That's um, all we got. I know. I was like, before we make ourselves look dumb, let's just... <laughs> One of the reasons I was so sad I didn't go to Asia this year was... Um, so I watched this documentary on Netflix, and it's called I Dream of Hiro, I think. Or, Hi- or sorry, Hiro Dreams of Sushi. And it's this guy, Hiro, who, I mean, looks like he's a million years old, but bless. He's so fit for his age. And he has this sushi restaurant, and it's one of those places where you don't order. You go in, and whatever you're eating that day is what you're eating that day. So whatever, like, they're giving you, that's it. (laughs) And so he has a two, I think they were saying, like, two or three-month wait list to get into this restaurant. But I called my brother, and I was like, we have to go and meet this guy because obviously there's a bit of a, you know, the clock is running here. (laughs) And I was like, I want to meet him so badly. So I thought when I was going to Japan, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to call and be like, I'm coming for tennis. Please make a reservation for me at this restaurant. I mean, 
I probably wouldn't even be able to afford it, but <laughs> I don't even know how much it costs to sit at Hiro's table, but I just thought that was so cool, these places. Again, Hiro is one step closer to becoming a sponsor of the Mini Break podcast, so maybe that'll be part of the deal. A little Sponsored by Hiro Sushi, that was so on top wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you need Febreze for your car? How about Hiro Sushi? Yeah, even better. Um, No, that... I like it. I, that That is the sort of story you want to hear about on the road. And I guess uh, to kind of round off this topic, because, you know, you mentioned all the, the the four different things that go into this part of the year. You talked about being goal-oriented. Uh, how much of it is, again, reaching ranking goals, reach, the, you know, the urgency to meet all of the goals you set at the beginning of the year? How do you weigh that pressure versus, again, staying healthy, understanding that even though there's three months left, you know, you have a whole nother season on the horizon? Is that the toughest part of the home stretch? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the biggest balance is not letting those things consume you and you know some of the goals and expectations you have for yourself it's just kind of one of those things where you have to trust that you've put in the work and obviously we can't control an outcome of a match we can do our best and give it all we got but we don't know what's going to happen on the other side so um it's it's always a balancing act um it's it's good to have those goals in the back of your mind because obviously it gives you something to work towards and and on those tough days you know the days that um you feel a little bit less motivated or um it seems like a bit more of a hurdle you kind of remember why you're putting in all the work you know so i think that's one of the biggest um uh, one of the biggest uh blessings to have a goal i i spent a lot of my career when i was younger just kind of playing you know i didn't really have goals um i think i was just naturally very competitive and i just always no matter what wanted to win which you know was fine when I was younger but I never really set goals for myself until I became a little bit older and I really saw the importance of having short-term mid-term and long-term goals um and I think you know it's like I said you have to have those in the back of your mind but you can't really focus on them too much like if you focus on ranking too much I mean the added pressure of thinking about that is you know, overwhelming in competition mode. So it's just kind of ex- trying to execute what you worked on at practice and uh, hoping for the best, honestly. <laughs> well, speaking of hoping for the best, this went way better than I could have possibly expected. This was. Oh, this... we love that. Yeah, we, we really did love this. This was an absolute blast. Any final thoughts on preparing for the home stretch on the U.S. Open before we wrap this bad boy up? I feel like we've touched on everything, huh? I don't I know. think I'll I have talk. any final thoughts. <laughs> so my final thought is I want you to know this whole podcast, I, I have a ripped sock on right now, and, like, my left big toe is sneaking through the sock. And the whole time I was like, do I take the sock off? Do I not take the sock off? But I'm like, my basement's cold, and I was like, no, I don't want cold feet, so I didn't. But now my toe is fully through the sock. Like, it's wrong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you were engaged in this podcast and you got your thoughts the whole time. <laughs> the 
robot of Alex that I was yeah, talking yeah. to. That's a, a two for one. Yeah, I can I can multitask a little bit. You play singles and doubles during a tournament. I podcast and worry about my left sock. It's very equivalent. Um, no, but with that in mind, sitting in the closet of my friend's house. <laughs> this is so. Oh uh, God, the imagery of both of us right now is. Just- <laughs> left toe shooting through your sock I'm fully sitting on the carpet with a Spongebob pillow behind me (laughs) this is great that's perfect well then uh, I want to give a huge shout out to our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff who as always have a f***ing editing job to do although I have to say it's pretty easy to podcast with you Vicky there's no no embarrassing edits in this one all fun stuff so I appreciate that from you Uh, and I do want to ask you and for our listeners out there who want to you know watch you play a little tennis down this home stretch what's your schedule looking like? Um, so September 23rd, I'm going to California. I have a 60K, $60,000 Challenger tournament in Templeton. Um, so hopefully I'll be in the main draw of that. I'm currently one out, so fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> and then after that, I think I'll be home for two or three weeks. And then I start um, in October those Aussie Open uh, wildcard challengers. So that'll be kind of my schedule from those on i'm not sure i do know i'm playing chicago um the oracle challenger in chicago or sorry not chicago geez wait is it no it's in where is it chicago houston one of the two houston houston yes because i was like chicago already happened yeah yeah i think houston Yes, Houston. So that's the one we're going to. And then uh, other than those, I'm pretty unclear, but I do know that those are on the schedule. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, again, all goes well and you will, you know, we'll be able to continue to do this as well. Because, again, a reminder for our listeners, shout out to you, Vicky. We are so thrilled to have you as part of our Crack Rackets podcasting team. You know, we're going to try, again, listeners, to do this at least once a week. Uh, we've got some fun interview stuff planned for – I mean, just a lot of fun. I don't want to I don't want overcommit, undercommit, but we've got a lot of cool stuff planned now that we've got Vicky in the fold. So hopefully we will be able to do all of that. And uh, just so with that in mind, though, and remember, Vicky, I asked one phrase for you that will become a common phrase every time you come on this podcast as we wrap up. But – for our lovely co-host today, Vicki Duvall, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire team at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Vicki, what do we tell our listeners? We're getting it on the first take. I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it all in. That's the break. Can I get it from you? That's the break, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.